Also a warm welcome to all those who have come from outside just to come and listen to this talk. I begin this Dhamma talk with the homage, the Namotasa. Please feel free to join. <coughs> Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa There are some mistaken notions about the meditation practice. One of them is that, for example, only sitting meditation is important, whereas walking meditation is just to relax the body. And mindfulness of daily activities, no. Why? Why should I do that? Just get it over so I can go and sit. So I've talked about this when I gave the instructions for the Vipassana meditation. Or another mistaken notion is that, for example, in the sitting meditation, one should attend to the rising and falling movement all the time. And if one is not, then one is not meditating correctly. So everything else is just a disturbance, distraction, or an obstacle to the real meditation. I also um, addressed this topic and I explained it. Another notion, mistaken notion, is around thoughts. Thoughts in the practice especially in the Vipassana meditation practice. The common notion, I need to get rid of my thoughts, then I can finally meditate. And so tonight's talk, it's about thoughts. And as we know and have come to experience, the mind likes to think. At least, mind does. And probably you can relate to this. Does your mind think as well? Yeah. Sometimes? <laughs> Whose mind has never thought in this meditation retreat? Please raise hands. You could go and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> so the ability of the mind to think seems to have no limits, no boundaries. This mind can produce thousands of thoughts. These can be good thoughts, bad thoughts, compassionate thoughts, thoughts that hurt, kind thoughts, trivial thoughts, random thoughts, joyful thoughts, fantasies, murderous thoughts, worrisome thoughts, and so on the list could go on almost 
endlessly. So basically, these thoughts can be uplifting or they can be depressing. They can us either take up to heaven or they can throw us down into hell. The nature of the mind is to think, to produce thoughts. And the mind does this in abundance, many times more than we like it. When I started to practice meditation many, many years ago, I thought that the aim of meditation was to get rid of all thoughts and to be able to sit in meditation without having any pain or physical discomfort. This was my notion of enlightenment. And after about three years of attending meditation retreats and also sitting at home, I was able to sit about one hour with either no pain or very little physical discomfort. And so I thought, great, I'm almost there. Half of what I need to overcome, I have already. Um, now only, I have to get rid of my thoughts. But to get rid of the thoughts seemed to be a bit more difficult. And actually, as a matter of fact, when I discovered how much this mind was actually thinking, I was quite shocked. But nevertheless, I was quite confident that I would also be able to tackle this problem and that I would soon get there to become enlightened. But now, many more years have passed, more than three decades have passed after much more intensive meditation practice, I have developed a much more realistic picture of meditation. And I can tell you a secret, I still have thoughts and I still have physical discomfort. And even the Buddha, even after he became the Buddha, fully liberated, he was still experiencing physical discomfort. He was still experiencing pain. We know, for example, that one day, as he was about to give a talk to a group of monks, he actually asked his assistant, the Venerable Ananda, to give the talk instead, because, as the Buddha said, he had some pain in the back and he wanted to take some rest, to lie down. Or, apparently, the Buddha also suffered sometimes from headaches. And, as I will later tell you, <coughs> the Buddha, as the Buddha, still had thoughts. So, this more realistic picture of practice, this includes, I have come to see that 
wanting to get rid of my thoughts is not the way out of suffering. Wanting to get rid of thoughts actually only creates more tension, more frustration, more ill will, more suffering. And I've come to see that it is basically impossible to have no physical discomfort or pain whatsoever and to have no thoughts at all. So I've come to better understand that the practice is actually not so much about the thoughts or to get rid of them, but much more the attitude towards the thoughts and to get to know the thoughts or to get to know the nature of the thought processes. And if we come to understand the nature of the thought processes better, we also come to understand the nature of the mind because thoughts are part of the mind. They are a mental process. Thoughts are like clouds passing on the sky. I think we all have at one time maybe uh, be lying on the grass and looked up into the sky and watched the, sky, the clouds passing on the skies. Maybe just little fluffy clouds that pass or big uh, clouds uh, almost racing over the sky. And so what we have, what we come to see is that these clouds in the sky, they are never static. They are always changing. Like today or yesterday when you looked up into the sky, it was quite fascinating to see the clouds rushing across the sky, sometimes very fast. So also to see they change size, they change their shape from moment to moment. They come and they go. And we know that the blue sky is always present, even though if clouds are running over the blue sky, or even if a gray layer of clouds covers the blue sky, we know it's still there. And likewise with the thoughts. There are the greedy thoughts, the aversive thoughts, the lustful thoughts, the loving thoughts, the boring thoughts, trivial thoughts, and so on. So they too, they are always changing. They are not static. Also the thoughts are kind of changing their size or their texture or their intensity. Thoughts are coming and going. And like the clouds that never kind of destroy the blue sky, 
thoughts, they do not mm, destroy the clear nature of the mind. They can cover it, they can mm, soil it, but never really make it completely disappear or destroy. So let's look at the attitude towards thoughts. Like myself in the past, many meditators think that thoughts should not be happening during their meditation practice. And often they equate a good meditation session with one when there were few thoughts. And they equate, equate a bad meditation with one when there were many thoughts present. And so the common reaction or attitude towards thoughts is one of aversion or dislike or ill will, resistance, later doubt, worry and anxiety may also arise. So the general reaction is along the lines, thoughts, they should not arise. I need to get rid of them. And somehow thoughts are seen as an enemy. And an enemy is something to be eliminated or to be killed, destroyed. Or when meditators come to the interview, very often I hear the comment, ah, I still have thoughts. And then I think, good that you still have thoughts. Good that you still are able to think. Usually I don't say it. <laughs> so imagine if you were able to get rid of all your thoughts, completely get rid of them including the necessary and skillful ones. You know, to come here, you had to think, you had to organize, you had to plan, you had to arrange things. So without thinking, you, you probably wouldn't be here. So as, as I said, in general, the attitude towards thoughts is one of dislike, aversion, irritation, and resistance. And often this is also coupled with judgment. On the one hand, judgment about ourselves. Oh, I'm such a bad meditator. I'll never get there. Or I cannot do the practice right or correctly. I'm such a failure. Or then judgment about the thoughts. Thoughts are bad. They are a nuisance. They are completely counterproductive. Thoughts are a distraction. They are an enemy. They prevent me from really meditating. In order to progress 
in our meditation practice, we really need to create a more conducive environment in regard to thoughts. And to this end, we need to carefully observe thoughts, to be aware of the thought process, so that we can understand what the nature of a thought is. So we need to understand the nature of thoughts in particular, and we need to understand the nature of the mind in general. And because we have never really had a good look at our thoughts or thought processes, we have not yet come to that uh, deep understanding. So when we start to direct our awareness to the thoughts or the thought processes, what we basically come to discover are things like Thoughts come and go, or they appear and they disappear. And I know this seems almost to be too trivial, <laughs> but we really need to see that. And we also come to see that thoughts are just an aspect of experience, like any other object or experience. And we see that the thoughts are not the self or coming <coughs> from the self. And we see that the basic nature of the mind, its clarity, is not lessened <coughs> by the thoughts. They temporarily Mm, cover it, but thoughts cannot mm, really lessen the um, original clarity of the mind. An illustration. The mind can be compared to water, and the nature of water is is clean and pure. This clean, clear nature of water can, can be obstructed by mud or sediment or another kind of pollution. So then the water is no longer clear or clean. But we can filter these sediments or um, the dirt in the water, and after that we'll have again the clear, clean water. So if the nature of the water was not clean and clear, then all the filters would not be able to restore it to its original purity. So if we are ready to launch ourselves into really be aware of the thoughts, if we really 
try to face our thought processes, then we need to befriend the thoughts. We need to make the thoughts our friends and not our enemies. So it's absolutely necessary that we become friends with our mind, including the thoughts the mind can produce. Because only when we have a good and benevolent attitude towards something, only then are we really ready to have a closer look at this thing. And with the metta meditation practice that we practiced in the first week of this retreat, we have hopefully created such a conducive environment in ourselves. So a loving, friendly, benevolent attitude towards ourselves, other living beings, and towards our experiences, which include thoughts. So in order to really look at thoughts, be mindful of them when they are happening, first of all, we need to be at ease at the fact that there are thoughts happening. Because otherwise, if we resist them, then we will always be uh, slaves to these thoughts. We, then we will always be fighting these thoughts. So when we have created this conducive environment, having an open, benevolent, friendly attitude towards all of our experiences, including what is happening in the mind, including our thoughts, what will we then discover? So we will see that these thoughts, they are a natural function of the mind, something that the mind does. The mind has the capacity to think. Like the other sense organs, they have a certain capacity. The eyes have the capacity to see to see forms and colors. Or the ears, they have the capacity to function to hear, to hear sounds. The nose has the capacity to smell, and so on. So, with our meditation practice, I think we do not want the nose to stop smelling scents, or we do not want the ears to stop hearing sounds. But somehow, many meditators want their mind to stop uh, thinking thoughts. So we need to see that this capacity to think is helpful on a relative level. 
to be able to think is useful in our lives. As I said, we have had a number of thoughts to come here, to plan and organize, send off the registration and so on. So we need to see the usefulness of thoughts. You know, in the practice of metta meditation, there we use this capacity of the mind to think, to develop this quality of loving-kindness. We use a phrase or wish like, may all beings be happy and well. That's a form of thinking. So we put it to good use for our practice for developing wholesome, beneficial states of mind and heart. What we also come to see and understand in regard to thoughts is the fact that many of our thoughts are conditioned by habits. They are conditioned by our general attitude. And we come to see that these thoughts, they appear so quickly. So the speed with which the thoughts are arising can be quite frightening. You know, it could be we see a person wearing a nice jacket and already or an instant later, the thought pops up, wow, that's a nice jacket. I'd like also to have such a one. So a thought fueled by greed, wanting. Or while walking into the dining hall, we smell soya sauce. And an instant later, oh no, not again, I don't like soya sauce. Ugh. A thought fueled by aversion, dosa. Or we put on our shoes and then looking outside, thought pops up, ah, oh, the weather patterns are changing nowadays. And actually my aunt is gonna celebrate her 80th birthday next week. And mm, I've forgotten to turn off the tap. Maybe I should, more the lawn. So, you know, just these trivial thoughts popping up uh, based on delusion, ignorance. And we also notice that in a retreat, <coughs> the mind produces so many trivial thoughts. Anything the mind can grasp, uh, it's happy about it, to think about. Because in a retreat, there are, so, there are much less social interactions and much less external stimuli that could entertain the mind. And so the mind just latches on anything it can grab to entertain itself. 
you know, happily doing walking meditation, lifting, pushing, dropping, touching. When will I do my laundry? <laughs> Rising, falling, in the sitting. Tomorrow should I wear the green socks or the grey ones? <laughs> or brushing your teeth. Maybe tomorrow morning I should try the porridge. It really looks good. <laughs> so just anything. The mind wants entertainment. <laughs> anything <coughs> trivial will do. <coughs> A friend of mine, um, when we were meditating in Burma, she was going through a phase when she had a lot of these trivial random thoughts. And later on, um, when we stopped meditating, she told me about that. And she said that she was calling herself Chatterbox, just having a chattering mind. Because the mind is so used to think and because it has become such a strongly ingrained habit it's so much easier to be lost in thought than to be present. And once a meditator said in an interview it's much more fun to be lost in a thought than to be present. Yes, sometimes especially when facing difficult um, experiences. Sometimes thoughts can also be an escape in order to not be present. And especially when, uh, when the experience is unpleasant or painful and challenging. And so then it seems to be so much nicer to be lost in a wonderful fantasy than to be facing the excruciating pain in the knee. Or it's much nicer to resort to a nice um, fantasy rather than be uh, mindful of the endless storytelling. Thoughts, they can also be a source of energy. Sometimes when the mind is dull or when it is lacking energy, then somehow the mind knows it only needs to pull open the energy drawer and get a juicy thought. And that will um, bring energy into the mind, energizes the mind, the body, the whole system, and so the dullness uh, disappears. And then there is another kind of thought that we have to be careful about, especially uh, in the practice of meditation. And these are the thoughts about the Dhamma. And these thoughts, thinking about the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, they can be so compelling 
because it's like these thoughts come along and say, we are not the futile uh, thinking mind, but we, these thoughts about the Dhamma, we are really valuable. You know, we, these thoughts, lead you to a better understanding of the Dhamma. We will we deepen your wisdom. Just think us, then you will get extraordinary insights. You know, it's no problem with thinking us, these Dhamma thoughts. Go on, go on. So, we must be careful not to be uh, seduced by these kinds of thoughts. Because anyway, people rather think about the Dhamma than really practicing it. So it would be best if we befriend our thoughts, all our mental experiences, so that we do not resist them anymore, so that we have a loving, kind, benevolent attitude towards these thoughts, mental processes. And so, if we are able to simply be mindful of the processes of thinking, if we are able to observe these processes, then we could feel such a tremendous sense of relaxation. And in a way, it's like it's so freeing to have the permission to think or knowing that it is not wrong to have thoughts, but that these thoughts can be there and that we can be in a place of noticing them, being aware of them. So then, with that sense of relaxation and acceptance, then we are freed from our compulsion to fight the thoughts, or to get rid of them, or to make them disappear. And that's such a relief. So for me, it was also a great relief to hear that the Buddha still had thoughts. Because somehow I had assumed that the Buddha or any enlightened being would have no more thoughts. So after many years of practice and after many years of fighting the thoughts, I came across a discourse, a sutta by the Buddha, which brought a great relief. And it was this discourse known as Thoughts are known by the Buddha. It's a sutta from the Majjhima the middle length saying. And so that sutta relates that a group of monks were sitting together after having had their meal. And so then they started to praise the Buddha's wonderful qualities. 
but soon they were interrupted because the Buddha himself came and he asked them what they were talking about and so they said that they were uh, relating or enumerating the Buddha's wonderful qualities. And so the Buddha was sitting down on the seat that had been prepared for him and then he told his assistant, Venerable Ananda, to relate a discourse that the Buddha had given some time ago talking about his wonderful qualities and he told Venerable Ananda to elaborate uh, on this discourse uh, in greater detail and so Venerable Ananda did it and when he had finished the Buddha added and said to Ananda Ananda, remember these two as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Tathagata was a word the Buddha used when he was referring to himself. So remember these two as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. For the Tathagata Feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Isn't it great to hear? <laughs> At least for me it was and it brought a great sense of relief. But <coughs> yeah, we should know thoughts when they arise, as they are present and as they disappear to see the arising and disappearing of thoughts just as any other processes do they do arise, are present and disappear a well-known Tibetan meditation master Mingo Rinpoche he said the beauty of meditation is to become aware of thoughts, of the process of thinking, and to understand the mind's nature to think. So when we no longer resist thoughts, when we no longer want to get rid, want to get rid of them, but when we are able to be in this position of simply being mindful when thoughts are happening, then we come to see and understand many important things, like to see that they are also subject to the three general characteristics. 
But first of all, we see and understand that thoughts are simply happenings happening in the mind. Thoughts are a natural occurrence. So it's neither good or bad to have thoughts, but they are simply part of our experience as human beings. They are simply part of our experience even as meditators. <laughs> and so, when we are mindful of what is happening in the mind, we can be aware uh, of the appearance of the thought. We might be present right at that moment when a thought pops up. And likewise, we might be mindful and completely present at that moment when the thought disappears. And so this is coming to see and understand impermanence, general characteristic of anicca. So we see and understand that thoughts are not lasting entities. They are not a solid entity, but they are a fleeting and impermanent process, like everything else. And so, as we are mindfully uh, observing of what is happening, then we maybe painfully notice that the thought arises although we had no desire to think this thought. We had no inclination to have this thought. Or else we must acknowledge that the thought <coughs> still continues to be there although we want it to disappear and dissolve. And so this is coming to see and understand the impersonal nature of these thought processes. That's the anatta nature. So we see and understand the impersonal nature of a thought, of the thought process. And so we come to see that we have no absolute control over these thoughts. We have no complete mastery over our thoughts or the mental processes. So that's anatta, not self. And being mindful of these thoughts when they appear, we come to see that they have a life of their own. And we also come to experience that these thoughts can be such a nuisance, they can be such a torment. And so we become more and more disenchanted by them. So we come to see and understand their unsatisfactory nature. So that's dukkha. So we really come to see how much dukkha these thoughts can create.
So when we are confronted with thoughts, when they arise in our meditation practice, then our response is, there can be various responses or various uh, scenarios are possible. So one way we respond to a thought when it arises is that we get identified with the thought and then get carried away, carried away with the story, carried away with the content of the thought. Or else, another way um, to respond to an appearing thought is to resist it, to want it make go away, want to get rid of this thought. So, to fight the thought. Or else, we can be mindful that the thought has arisen, that the thought process is happening. So we just see that something is happening in the mind, on the mental level. It's like the thought process creates some movement or some waves in the mind. And we can be aware of that. And we can be aware of that with hopefully no or very little resistance. So to be aware and mindful of thoughts is basically not different from being mindful of any other objects, like being mindful of the rising and falling movement of the belly, or to be mindful of hearing, or uh, to be mindful of an itchy sensation, or to be mindful of anger, or to be mindful of happiness. But with thoughts, we must be a bit more vigilant. This is because of different reasons. We must be more vigilant because we easily get caught up with the content of the thought. We easily get into the story of the thought. And Part of it, it can be, it can happen because we get easily seduced by the story or the content of the thought. We also must, must be more vigilant because we so easily get identified <coughs> with the thought, with the story, the content. Immediately, we take it so personal. And as a result of taking it so personal, of identifying with the thought, then we immediately react in our habitual way. So then we, we react with aversion or with attachment or with uh, judgment and so on. And so very quickly, 
we find ourselves not just being aware of the thought, but we find ourselves in the reaction uh, to the thought. And so, it's really a process of learning and getting used to that we can simply rest our mindfulness with the thought process. To simply know a thought is happening. To know that this process of, of thinking happens in the mind. So, when we try to be aware of thoughts, no need to go into the story or the content of the thought, but what, what we want to be mindful of is the thought process, this mental process, something that takes place in the mind. So this ability to simply rest in awareness or to be mindful that a thought process is happening in our mind needs, needs training, it needs practice. And when we get better at it, when we are able to when we are able to be mindful of a thought in this way, then it's like an old man sitting on a bench watching the children play. He just watches them how they play. He is not lost in the play. He does no longer identify with it. He watches and sees them. And so some meditators then think, well, just watching, being mindful of thought processes happening in the mind doesn't feel like being meditating at all. And somehow it runs so against our ingrained habit of what meditation should be. Namely, to get rid of thoughts, to make them disappear so that we finally then can meditate. Apparently, in Tibetan, the word for meditation is gom, or something like that. I don't know if my pronunciation is correct. But apparently, gom, what they use for meditation, this means to become familiar with. So we want to become familiar with what is happening in our mind and body. We want to become familiar with the thought processes as they are happening in our mind. And so then we can ask ourselves, well, what is the difference between ordinary thinking and having thoughts during meditation? Can we draw a line? 
Well, the difference is awareness or mindfulness. This makes the whole difference. So if we are lost in a thought, if we are overwhelmed by a thought, if we are completely carried away, then we are not meditating. But if we are aware that thinking is occurring, or if we are mindful of this thought process happening in the mind, then we can say we are meditating. It's such a fine line, but it's a huge difference. So with our meditation practice, we do not want to destroy the ability or faculty of thinking. Far from it. But what we want to do with the practice of Vipassana meditation is to understand the nature of thoughts, the nature of these thought processes. And as we become more and more mindful of the thoughts that arise in our mind, gradually we will come to understand much better what kind of thoughts run through our mind. And then we become more eager to weaken the harmful thoughts, to weaken the unskillful thoughts, to overcome, finally, all these um, unskillful, harmful, unwholesome thoughts. And at the same time, then we become eager to strengthen and develop the wholesome thoughts, the beneficial ones, the skillful ones, like the metta thoughts. So with the practice of metta meditation, we have been strengthening this ability to think kind thoughts. And so, strengthening the beautiful, skillful thoughts, weakening and overcoming the harmful ones, detrimental ones, unwholesome ones, this brings a great sense of relief. It also brings a sense of freedom. How many times have we been at the mercy of our negative and unskillful thoughts. It's really very unpleasant to be at the mercy of these negative and harmful thoughts. So how many more times do we want to be slaves to them? By understanding them and then yeah, to engage in the training to overcome the unskillful ones and to strengthen the skillful ones that brings relief, that brings freedom, that brings ease and peace. So 
So I want to finish this talk with a thought of Venerable Tenzin Palmo, the English nun who has been ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for many, many years. After that, after this thought, we'll sit quietly for some moments. So she said, Imagine that there is a loudspeaker attached to your mind and the mind of everybody else. So every person would hear whatever everybody else is thinking. If this were the case, I think, people would really be interested to learn meditation, to learn it as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.